Bracken and Bell together. There's Cooper breaking through. A chance now. This will be the fourth ball for Aberdeen. when things are going wrong against you if you don't get the breaks of the ball Cooper in with Stewart he didn't really know where the ball was but he got the break and as you say it's a schoolboy's dream being able to take your time knowing that really all you've got to do is crack it into the back of the net Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Here We Go podcast. Now, we were going to be recording a podcast later on tonight, uh, but unfortunately, uh, the Livingston game has been postponed. So instead, we're going to we're going to cover some other topics just to, just to, just to tie us over until the new year. Uh, now, joining myself and Richard, uh, we'd like to welcome back. You're overdue a hat trick ball at least, anyway. Is uh, Simon Cato? How are you, Simon? I'm very well indeed, thanks, Martin. Nice to be back on this. Have you had a good Christmas and New Year? Did you receive any Aberdeen-related tat for Christmas at all? I did not receive any Aberdeen-related tat, I'm sorry to say. I uh, received a lot of Peloton-related tat, which I suspect a lot of <laughs> other people did as well. So it's a wee hint for me there, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I think a few of us got, I think a few has got similar hints for Christmas as well. Uh, also joining us on the podcast as well, we have um, Ryan Crombie from the Red Point of View blog. How are you, Ryan? I'm doing well. Good to hear Good. your your voices and be back on. It's great to have you. It's great to have you back. And um, how about yourself, uh, Ryan? How was how was Christmas to, and Santa to you? Yeah, it was good in relation to Aberdeen tat. I did get a mug with a big R on it, so that was uh, that was nice. But with a big Aberdeen badge on the other side. At least you got something there. For the second year in a row, I got no Aberdeen related stuff, which I'm really devastated about. Moving on, so we'll, like I mentioned there, we're supposed to be we were supposed to be recording tonight uh, talking about the, the Livingston match, but Richard, uh, unfortunately, we we found out on fairly short notice that it was postponed. Not really a great advert for Scottish football, that isn't it? Oh, stuff happens, though, doesn't it? It probably wouldn't have been off today, today's game, if they had a normal pitch with the undersoil heating as mandated by the league. But you know, there are other games that they've had that would uh, probably survive because of the pitch when they beat off. off. Otherwise, but if the sequence of events went as Willie Miller was describing on the on the radio, as in they cleared the pitch yesterday, and therefore allowed it to be exposed to the coldest night of the year, then that is a bona fide shambles. Unfortunately, though, I don't think it's really set up to be any sort of reckoning for the use of plastic pitches in the league. It, it's simply too important a revenue stream for the clubs that have them. And there doesn't seem to be the votes or even really the desire within the league to regulate regulate against them. Because you can guarantee that a few of the other clubs who don't currently have pitches are probably very heavily considering it. What we need, I suppose, is some of those three sides to go down and maybe, just maybe, we'd see some change. But of course the advantage they derive from those pitches are one of the reasons why those three sides do better than you might expect and stay up. Yes, yeah, Simon. Simon, it is. It's a, it's a curious one. I mean, you know, I think we've we've on this podcast. We've in in the past. I personally have been very sniffy about these pitches. You know, we've seen certain players not being able to play on them. Uh, but Richard's right to say that. You no, know, these teams. You no, know, it is an important revenue stream for them. We will have to be careful not to just kind of go overboard on the on the frustration here. Uh, perhaps it is perhaps helped. You no, know, with the situation we find ourselves in, at least there wasn't you no know, fifteen hundred Aberdeen fans down there as well. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, on the point about the the use of the pitch, one of my sons scored a hat trick on the pitch at Livingston, and I would say it's probably the happiest day of his life. So there's, you know, there is something about getting and playing, you know, for for young lads actually going and playing on a proper pitch in the stadium is is absolutely fantastic. I mean, when I when I saw the game was off today, or when I saw that they were having the inspection, I thought, well, if the game goes ahead, it'll be unwatchable. 
the ball will be ballooning off a rock solid surface. And you know, watching the game at Kilmarnock a couple of weeks ago is bad enough. You know, it, it's very, very difficult for the players to to move from from the pitches they're used to onto a pitch where the ball cannons off the surface, and and you have to play in an entirely different way. I mean, you basically can't play balls into space; you have to play balls into feet. So, it, you know, it, once you, once I knew the game was in doubt today, I was thinking, well, you know, I'd rather the game goes off and we, we actually have a game that we can potentially, you know, play as well as we can and and have something that we can actually enjoy. So, and, and I do get, you know, Richard's right that the, the the quality of football you get on these pitches is so poor that your instinct is to hope that the teams uh, suffer as a consequence of that on a on a football sense. You know, I think I think we'd all be pretty happy to see the end of Hamilton, who don't have any meaningful support, have an absolutely awful pitch, and we don't even have a particularly good record down there either. Um, but but certainly Kilmarnock and, and Livingston's pitches are, are just as bad. It, it's not it's not an attractive surface to watch on. And, and you know, the, the, the Premier League wouldn't allow it in, in England. And if we want a, a league that's taken really, really seriously, then I think, you know, the, the, the pitches need to be in grass. Listen, if no one else is going to take you up on the open goal, that is the line about, you know, watching uh, terrible football on a terrible pitch, about how that was something we wouldn't want to do, then, you know, I'm going to put my hand up and, and take that opportunity. Uh, but... But no, it, it is it is something which they derive a benefit from seven days a week, uh, probably fourteen fifteen hours a day in, in warmer weather at least. So uh, clubs will be so so reluctant to change, and uh, yeah, until the, there is that will at a league level. And the bottom line is so important for it, for so many of our clubs that the couple hundred thousand that they could derive from that income stream means that a lot of them, even if they don't have it yet will definitely be considering it for the future. I think that's a fair point. Um, Ryan, I mean, I want to touch, up, touch on that one with you as well. I mean, Richard's obviously make, Richard and Simon make some good points there. I mean, but these, these pitches are seen as, you know, have been seen as a bit of a leveller um, in the past for, the, for, for these teams as well. The interest, I suppose, is, you no, know, we've got a, we've got a, the Scottish Premier, Premier League, or SPFL, sorry, um, it's currently, you know, it's currently got the contract with Sky Sports. Surely these pitches make it a less attractive Option. I mean, not that I'm suggesting that some guy in I don't know Bolton is going to sit and watch. No, is sitting. No, choose to watch an Aberdeen versus uh, Livingston game on a plastic pitch. But um, if you're trying to sell the league to you know the foreign markets, having these sort of pitches surely isn't something that um, is an appeal. No, I mean I think it definitely does cheapen the the league as a whole. I mean, especially when you see the the state of some of the pitches, but. You have to just weigh it up with the fact that these clubs don't get, they don't survive solely off TV money, um, and as we've discussed, they they get a lot of revenue from the use of these pitches, and it makes it worth their while. Um, because if it's if it wasn't worth their while, they'd be changing back immediately. So there obviously has been a lot of reactionary stuff to the pl- plastic pitches. Um, on Twitter, just with the game being postponed, but we don't complain about the one down at Rugby Park too much, um, given we seem to like that one, especially. So, um, yeah, it does cheapen it to a certain extent, but if it suits these clubs, then, yeah, fair play to them. I suppose one thing I personally should add as well is um, a, wee, a wee opinion there is that um, if the people of Kilmarnock, Hamilton and Livingston perhaps, um, a few more of them maybe supported their local team, uh, rather than getting buses through to to Glasgow for those the other two the other two um, every couple of weeks, then you know maybe maybe these teams wouldn't have to have these pitches. Uh, but I suppose that's maybe another a debate for another day, Richard, isn't it? Well, listen, I totally respect the support your local team argument. However, the the whole criticising smaller teams for the size of the support thing is is so uh, not us, frankly. So you know, it's that opinion falls in between those two stools. I would say. <laughs> Fair point. I want to talk about a larger point we'll talk about as well is um, perhaps the excitement or lack thereof we've seen around Aberdeen this season. There does seem to be a bit of a malaise uh, around around the club, around the, the team at the moment, perhaps watching games. Um, in your opinion, how much of it is down to just the fact that you know we can't go to games? Um, obviously, we're quite far off the top of the table. Despite the fact that we're not too far off second, you know the team in second have a have a ton of game in hands, games in hand. 
uh, it looks like there's not going to be a lot of you know, opportunity for success this season with those two teams. Where do, where do you stand? I mean, do you feel the same that you're kind of struggling to be motivated for this season? Um, no, uh, and I think that one of the things that I think is off the radar of the fans a little bit is how important getting third place is in terms of the uh, European League football that we might get next next season. I think the fans are probably struggling to get up for a battle with Hibs for third place because, because um, you know, in, in years gone by, we have been uh, challenging Rangers and Celtic more strongly. But the, the truth is, that's what we're in. And and it will be us or Hibs that will be finished third. And the team that finishes third will get this um, this opportunity to have European League football. I think part of the problem with this season has been the fact that um, our, in, in years gone by, we have been battling toe-to-toe with Rangers and even getting the better of them to a significant degree. And this season they have bought well, and you can argue about where the money's come from to pay for that, but leaving that aside, they have substantially improved their, their squad, and they have beaten us comfortably on the two occasions that we've played them. And one of them was the opening day of the season, which obviously gets everyone deflated right from the word go, and the second one was a 4-0 trouncing. And I think that that probably gets everyone feeling a bit down, looking at the league table, where suddenly from, from going um, from a, you know, I think, was it two or three years ago? We played them six times. We won three of them and drew two. Um, so you know, going from a, from not long ago, where we were comfortably getting the better of them, to finding now that there is there is frankly a bit of a gap in in the opposite direction. And and then the other factor is the the sort of style of football. And I think for a period um, after we signed Watkins and when Wright and Hedges were were playing well, um, we were playing really attractive. Um, football and a combination of, of Watkins getting uh, well Watkins and Wright uh, getting injured has has meant that that style the the um, three four three formation that, that seemed to suit them particularly well and, and had us playing attractive football we're, we're persevering with it but with uh, players in, in those positions who can't really seem to make it work so well and that kind of culminated uh, in the in the draw at Motherwell where we had. Uh, Cosgrove and Maine together and the football was absolutely awful and I think that that is a factor in in generally everyone feeling a bit down in that we're so far behind Rangers we can't catch them and we are grinding out results in a not particularly attractive way so to me that's you know I'm 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 not particularly down about it I still enjoy my Aberdeen games and I'm I am up for us having a battle with Hibs and wanting to win that because I see it as being um, important. But I do understand why uh, a lot of supporters will be um, feeling down that we aren't able to really hurt Rangers in the way that we've done in years gone by. Ryan, uh, I, think that's a, I think that's a really good point Simon makes there, is that no, we have to do, do have to remember that at the start of the season when we had Wright, Hedges and, Hedge, uh, Wright, Hedges and Watkins going overboard on the praise and things were real things were really good to watch is it is it just that you know now that the footballs became a little more i don't want to say agricultural because that implies long ball and we're not that and i don't think they're that type of team but now that the footballs became slightly less attractive um, and we're grinding out the results rather than maybe sc- scoring a few goals along the way is it just are we just maybe guilty of being a little bit greedy to an extent maybe but i think the the overriding thing for me is just um, that you can't you can't get in to watch it. I mean, perfect example today is um, if it were able to get into the stadium. I mean, it probably would have been along at Livingston, um, regardless. Um, but I certainly wasn't going to pay twenty quid to sit and watch in my house. Um, so as we were playing good football at the start of the season, people are sort of more upbeat, happy to sort of fork out for some pay per view subscriptions. Um, and, and season tickets, that's fine. Um, however, it's a lot easier when you're not playing well, um, playing ugly football, just to kind of switch off from it, especially when you can't get into the stadiums. Um, and I do think that's sort of another added factor into why there has been a bit more of a sort of malaise in the last kind of couple of months. Um, I mean, I find myself with that St. Baron Cup game at the, at the end of it. It's like, Okay, well, you wouldn't have been able to get into the the semi finals anyway. Um, even even the Scottish Cup semi final against Celtic, um, sat and watched the, the Celtic Hearts final, um, and it, it's just not the same. Imagine celebrating Aberdeen win the Scottish Cup from your living room; it's just not the same. So, I'm struggling to kind of get up for it the same as you would be if you could be there and experience it. Um, 
and I definitely think a lot of people um, are feeling the same because I, I put out a wee poll and a red point of view and a vast majority of people haven't even bothered to buy pay-per-view subscriptions so they're not even at all the season that was um, so they haven't even seen us playing good football at the start of the season never mind um, when we have been playing badly recently I do think that just the fact we can't get in people are a bit scunnered with it all Yeah, I think week on week, Martin, game on game we've spoken about how it's obviously not great at the moment but um, we do definitely have a tendency as a support to look back through rose-tinted rose-tinted, not red-tinted glasses at uh, past times under the current manager we've pretty much always been a pragmatic caution first side under Derek McInnes I think there was more defined styles in those first couple of seasons because we were a counter-attacking team and that was fine when teams would actually come at us but you do you can only do that for a certain period until you become you know known for being a good side then teams are going to sit in against you and we really struggled in those first couple of seasons to break down anybody that did that there was that period in 2016-17 which was a sort of culmination of the of the first Derek McInnes team that had the ability to to open up teams and to score goals but only really in the second half of the season when all pressure was off in terms of the league and to be honest the last time I can really remember prior to 2020 such a head of steam being built up over the style of play rather than the actual results was in fact in December 2016 which we then went on to have a pretty glorious and very very well remembered second half to that season even though obviously frustratingly it didn't end up uh, resulting in any silverware so um, you know we each week we, we talk about our frustration with the fact that things aren't very fluent aren't clicking but you know, it's hard to look at a points tally that's two points per game and, and say he's doing a bad job. Um, and to go back to the point that Simon made, yeah, I, I think there, there has to be a kind of reframing of expectations. And that's difficult. That's really, really difficult um, when you have been used to, even if those chances were remote in those seasons that we we were involved in a race for the title, even if those chances were remote, the, the sheer excitement, and even for somebody like me who, you know, his first season was 83-84 at Pataudry, remember that game we beat St Johnston on New Year's Day to go top of the table, the sheer excitement in the ground that day when that second went in, and obviously for people who had never seen us top the league in January, it was palpable, and it meant a lot to people, and to reframe those expectations, and Simon is absolutely right, the third and we have hit upon this point time and time and time again on the podcast this season. It's so important this season. It's probably actually more important than finishing second. And that will be a race and it, it will be exciting. It has been seesaw. And, you know, it, it, unlike the, the sort of battle of Motherwell last season where both sides were stumbling uh, and dropping points over the place, there has been a good level of consistency by both teams. So I think it, it will be an exciting close to the league season, even if we're nowhere near the actual top of the table. But to reframe your expectations from the expectations we had, even if they were a little bit fanciful, of winning a title to getting excited about third. I guess it also comes from the comes to the fact is I mean, you no know, like I mentioned like I mentioned there, you no, know, the cup success perhaps does does seem to be a little further further away despite, you no know, Despite the fact, uh, Ryan, that you know we've seen Celtic have struggled. You know they're not going. They're not going to do. Um, I don't know whatever five five trebles in a row. You know they're out of the cup. Um, that was an opportunity there. Um, so it does. It does. It doesn't look like you know. I mean, obviously we all want to win trophies. We all want to see Aberdeen get get there. Um, and you know, at the moment, um, that that doesn't does seem to be like a struggle as well because. Even when the even when the big teams are the so-called big teams, Celtic and Rangers are, are slipping up, we find ourselves slipping up as well. Yeah, I mean we have been susceptible to that in the past, um, even over recent seasons. A couple of cup exits, three nils to Motherwell. Um, uh, yeah, it does make it worse when you look at that semi-final lineup, um, and there's an opportunity for some silverware there, and we're not in it because. McInnes does like to make the fact that point out the fact that the Cups are our best chance of success um, and you would like to have thought that when the big clubs do drop out we'd be sort of there waiting behind to pick up 
um, well, at least an opportunity to pick up some silverware. Uh, and that's not the case. And I think that's perhaps what's like, people have a lot of gripes with as well. It's just the fact our performances in the cup competitions recently um, do leave a lot to be desired. I mean, the Hamden performance against Celtic was just the... We've all seen the story before. Um, it's the exact same. And then the one at St Mirren, um, you, it didn't look like they were informed that it was a cup game at all. Uh, so, yeah, there does just seem to be a bit of a a malaise around the cups as well, uh, as well as well as the leagues. Um, I mean, obviously, got the Scottish Cup again this year. Uh, remains to be seen if uh, <laughs> we'll we'll pick up for that. Hopefully the draw is kind to us, but even then, um, when you can't go down to Paisley and beat somebody, and you're you're not going to win any silverware. It's funny, I look at the last four of the League Cup, and I can make a really convincing case for three of the four teams to actually win the trophy. Just not Hibs. Uh, and to be honest, I'd say the same <laughs> if it was us uh, instead of Hibs in that final four as well, because I can I can just see ways in which Hibs will will mess that up, and it would be it would be the same for us. But uh, but obviously. It is frustrating when, you know, the two teams who can outspend us go out and we're not there to pick up the pieces. Um, it was a, you know, we were there when that happened right at the start of McInnes' reign, when Morton went to Parkhead and won. It's just, it's not easy to accept, but it's easier to accept when a team who are outspending you by five to six, five or six to one are picking up the trophies. It's a lot harder to accept when those trophies are, are maybe being shared around or maybe a team such as Hibs are picking up two trophies in the spell that Derek McInnes has been in charge of Aberdeen to his one. So we'll move on to what may be the last ever episode in a regular feature that we've had on this podcast called Ronnie Watch. Stories today that Ronald Hernandez will be leaving. Um, he'll be joining uh, joining an American club on loan. Um, now, Richard, uh, we've now you've obviously uh, taken quite an interest in this. You've posted quite a lot of stuff on our our, our feed about it. Uh, regarding there was around about the time he was uh, signed there was a, a £1 million related party loan made to the club there's something perhaps um, not a little bit um, shifty about this isn't there? Well the the assumption that I'm making which might be wrong is that that related party loan has come from one of the directors because uh, it will come from a director but it will come from one of the directors linked to Atlanta United um, and therefore the, the assumption and I think there's been a, a thread by a Venezuelan journalist which really just kind of pulls everything that's been assumed together as opposed to having anything concrete to say um, but yeah it's, it's kind of what what you would look at the facts that do exist and think may be an outcome and if it does turn out that way because we're still in, in the the case of not knowing exactly what's going to happen with Ronnie. He's back home for Christmas. He's seeing his family, and that's great for him as a, as a person because it's been a tough, long nine months, I believe, without them. But from our point of view, it's the presentation of the whole thing, isn't it? Because back in January when he signed, the image that was being presented to the Dawn support was of a club that was actively scouting a foreign league, prepared to pay a pretty considerable sum of money to get a young talent and it turns out the whole thing was a sham. You know, if Atlanta had bought him from the outset and just loaned him directly to us for a, for a season, which I, I know wouldn't have been possible for two reasons. Firstly, they had reached their overseas player roster limit. They actually bought an extra spot. They traded a, an extra spot with another team um, a few weeks ago on December the 13th. So there is now an open spot. Um and also because of work permit regulations, he, he could come here as a permanent signing, but he probably wouldn't have got a work permit as a loan signing. Uh, work permits, by the way, are another reason why I don't think you can expect a, a steady stream of uh, loanees coming from Atlanta to, to Aberdeen. But if it had been a loan directly from the outset, then I don't think people would have blinked an eye at the deal. But there's a subterfuge and a deception there that leaves a, a very bad taste. Now, we frequently highlighted on our feeds the Miles Anderson deal that Craig Brown did in order to ensure that Nick Blackman came to Aberdeen on loan rather than Motherwell for the second half of the 2010-11 season uh, and what a tremendous bit of business Nick Blackman was um, because uh, obviously Miles Anderson's dad is the agent Jerome Anderson 
Uh, and that was a terrible business that stank horribly uh, and made no less terrible by the fact that he moved from us to a similarly dodgy deal at Blackburn. Now, unfortunately, this Ronnie Hernandez deal for me now sits in that same bracket. Simon, so Simon, how does this, how does the transfer, how does this sit with you? Well, it, it's hard to disagree with anything that uh, Richard just said, but, but one thing I would say is that um, the subterfuge, if there was one, was exposed almost immediately by the fact that um, Derek McInnes refused to play along with it. Because the players only made, whatever it is, six appearances for us. And if, if we had genuinely invested a million pounds in a, a right-back that was one for the future for us, then the reality is that that player would have been playing every single week. Not only could he not get Logan out of the team, but we then changed formations so we didn't even require a player of that position anymore. And so I think that you know probably we would have had the wool pulled over our eyes even more if, if Hernandez had actually been put into the first team and, and played regularly. But it was pretty obvious from Derek's public remarks and, and, and frankly the way that the, the um, player was used by us where he was, you know, quite often if there was a full squad available he didn't even make the bench then it was pretty obvious that this wasn't someone, you know, I think most supporters worked out pretty quickly that there was some other back deal in the background going on that meant that this wasn't a player that we were really investing our, our time and effort in and so it was kind of treated accordingly so I guess what I'm more interested in is the upside. You know, if we're going to suffer, you know, Richard's right. There's an element of sort of indignity about having our 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 club used in this way, and therefore, what is the what upside are we getting to to compensate for that? And I guess the upside is that we do have backers who have significant finances available. Um, we are not overly concerned about the position we find ourselves in, despite the club being very frank about the, the situation it's in, in financially, but I don't think any of us are, are worried that the club is on the verge of going to the wall, despite the significant drop in income that the club has and maybe that's just the, the smooth that, that goes with the rough of the, the Ronnie deal. So, and I also think, you know, I'm glad for him in a way that, you know, it must be obvious that he knew what was happening as well, because for him to, to move here and then, you know, away from his family and not get a game, you know, really hardly get used at all, pretty dispiriting for him. So it's kind of working out fine for him as well. It hasn't harmed us really, other than possibly to a minor extent reputationally. So I agree, it's not great and and... It might have been presented to the supporters in a, in a different way at the at the outset, but otherwise, I guess if there are if there's a big upside that we get from the involvement with uh, Atlanta, then maybe we can just swallow this one. I guess. I think that's it. It is about presentation, Simon, and it's even even if at the outset the club had said, well, you know, Atlanta have uh, have been have been watching him and they have a plan for him. But it was felt the best thing for his development was to come to Scotland to, to spend a year or 18 months here. Then, again, I think people would have looked on it far more favourably. Yeah, I agree. Right, right. I think it is, it's a, it is a bit of a shame this has happened. Because the thing is, when he first came here, there was a bit of excitement. You know, I think some of the fans had... Um, there was quite a bit of excitement among the support. Um, and but Simon's right to, to say that there as well, that you know, Derek McInnes straight away... Um, pretty much straight away refused to play play ball with us. So he obviously, I mean, he obviously knew what was going on anyway. Um, it's just, it's just a very cu- another quite curious tale in the history of Aberdeen Football Club. Pretty much just echoing what the other guys have said. It's just that it all comes down to the fact that, well, the presentation of it, where you thought all of a sudden Aberdeen were sort of investing almost a million quid in a up and coming international young talent, you're like, well, right, we're really going places, but um, Wool's kind of been pulled over our eyes uh, on this one. Or, if you're uh, quick enough like Simon to see through it, um, that that wouldn't be the case. But yeah, I, I just think that it's all down to the fact that the club sort of hyped up the, the transfer um, and it was portrayed as um, a kind of next level signing when that it was obviously known that wasn't going to be the case at all. Um, but as as we've mentioned, if we have a sort of strong financial backing, which is the upside of this, then and there's potential for that kind of transfer to happen in the future, um, where we do actually get a player of 
well, we don't really know his quality. We've barely seen him, but we do get someone of that stature um, for a short period of time. Um, then it can only be a benefit. It does just sort of uh, feel like the, the club has been used in the situation, which isn't going to go down well with uh, supporters. Yep, so uh, so farewell, Ronnie. Uh, we hardly knew you. In a sh- few short days as well, the January transfer window will be wide open. Simon, you look at the squad that we currently have. What would your first protocol be if you were looking for to to bring someone in? I mean, like I say, Hernandez is out, so we're we're, we're down a right back, but we don't necessarily need a right back. Um, would you be looking in that position, or is there somewhere that you would you would like to see um, strengthened or someone particularly come in? Um, well, I think <laughs> as a starting point, the squad is still too big. So, you know, particularly at a time when we've got no supporters coming in, we need to, I think, uh, a starting point is going to have to be to look at players who are potentially going to be moving on. And if they're going to be moving on in the summer, do we want to move them on now? Because, uh, obviously, Mikey Devlin is, is injured. Um, he would have been one that I would have been thinking of. Uh, Ojo is another one. Um, probably Logan and McGinn are coming to the end of their, their contracts. And they would be others. You know, the other day, um, when we were really struggling for any sort of inspiration, we didn't go to McGinn, who looked unfit when he, he was on previously, and I think that sent maybe certainly to me sent a bit of a message. So if if on on the assumption that we are looking to uh, remove uh, some or all of those guys, and there is going to be movement up front, then then that's where you're you're looking. To me, um, Curtis Main is a you know, uh, bottom six level SPFL striker and not really suitable even, you know, he's probably suitable for backup for us at best. But, you know, for for, for us to have a regular run of games, uh, you know, at a time of the season we're playing game after game where he's getting a game regularly up front, I think that's not great for us. So I think up front is obviously where we've got to be looking because um, Sam Cosgrove is playing as though he's going to be off soon, being honest. Uh, I don't think Maine is is the right level. I'm not. Jury's out on Edmondson, who's who's uh, a trier and a, a young lad, but I, I don't know if he if he cuts it. So that leaves us with very little. If we get Watkins back, I'd be delighted with that. Um, and and the other one that everyone's talking about is Ross Stewart. I have to say, I'm I'm really really unsure about him as a, a signing. Um, you know, he's a guy who came to the professional game late. Uh, he got a big break when St Mirren signed him and he couldn't get a game there and was released by them and that's not particularly long ago that's only whatever two and a half years ago so uh, I, he does look like you know athletic build and puts himself about but I, again I would be concerned that he's not the quality that we're, we're after um, Watkins uh, has been a bit of a revelation I, I must say he, he turned out to be a lot better than I'd anticipated he would be uh, particularly an issue I think we have generally when he's not around is holding the ball up front and so if we can get somebody if we're going to play this um, 3-4-3 formation uh, which is effectively going to have one target man player or one, one main striker with, with right and hedges as the other two uh, forwards then it's going to have to be somebody who's capable of holding the ball up and uh, you know if it's I, I don't know about Ross Stewart I would like us to get Watkins and I would probably like us to get someone else as well if Cosgrove and, and Main are, are going out Myself and Richard have touched this on this on previous previous podcasts. Um, Simon mentions Ross Stewart there. I mean, you would assume that Curtis Main would probably be another one who's on the would be on the way out. Um, his contract's up at the end of the season. I mean, is Ross Stewart an upgrade on Curtis Main, um, or would you, you know you would you would think we'll see maybe one coming in potentially that would either be Watkins or Stewart. Who would you rather have? Cause, rather have? Would you pick one of them or? I mean, I, I would think at the minute probably. Um, Watkins, we know what he brings to the table, um, the quality that he has, two goals and two assists and I think 13, 14 appearances or something, so he has um, chipped in um, and the quality of football was a lot better when it was Watkins um, up front. He will be coming back from injury um, a lengthy layoff, his fitness might not be 100% if we did bring him back and it would be February before he would be able to get back in the pitch but I do think that it would be a risk worth taking because we know what we'd get from him and we know that the quality that he adds up front Ross Stewart 
probably be more a bit of a, a working project, just given his sort of irregular form at Ross County. He started the season well, um, but since then has dropped off a bit, and he hasn't regularly proved over a season that he could um, cut it in, in the top six and provide regular goals for us. So uh, I would agree with Simon that the jury's still out on, on Ross Stewart. Um, and would rather see Watkins or somebody else of that quality come in um, for six months um, just until the end of the season because obviously January is a notoriously difficult uh, transfer window to get anyone in on a a long-term contract um, potentially pre-contract but I do think a bit of a a stopgap signing like Watkins at the minute um, would be preferable over to over uh, a sort of work in progress like Ross Stewart would be. Well, I think the mention of pre-contracts there is quite interesting because I think this coming summer could be quite a bloodbath. I think there could be bargains to be had um, in that market. You know, we, we speak about potential replacements maybe at centre-half uh, and obviously there's guys like Finlay and Gallagher coming out of contract. I, I think there'll be opportunities for, for movement there, definitely. There's some immediate work needing doing in January, because of course in January you've got the Edmondson, Molly Watkins, Gary Woods deals coming up. Uh, I presume Thomas Cherney is going to be fit again, so Woods will, that uh, won't be necessary. Greg Lee is also a contract. It, uh, you'd have to assume that his latest injury has probably put an end to his chances of extending, or, or, or maybe they will, you know, they will want to rather have a known quantity in the building for the second half of the season so he might be extended to the end of the season but those are decisions that need to be made very quickly and then of course there's potential for a huge turnover in the summer um, there are no fewer than 12 players in and around the first team squad who have contracts expiring in summer 2021 um, now some of these are, are backups and some of these we've, we've spoken about Replacing and, and spoken about spoken about looking for upgrades. Some of them are naturally coming to the end of their careers, such as Shea Logan and Niall McGinn, perhaps. But there are guys in there who you would think, given their um, number of top team appearances, uh, and also perhaps given their potential for those that uh, are out and loan or who haven't made the breakthrough to be regular started yet, you'd be looking to to sign up. Obviously, you've got Tommy Hoban is one of those names. I think he's someone that we'd all agree, if the circumstances allow, that we'd like to see tied down in a longer deal. I don't, I don't think there'd be too much dissent from any Aberdeen fan on that. I think it's fair to say that, that, that Tommy has had a, a solid season. I, I think the most impressive thing about his season really has been uh, the fact that he's been able to put together such a string of games. Uh, I think it's the highest number, even at this point, that he's ever managed in a, a whole season, and we're only in December. So that's really encouraging from him, and I'm sure for him personally that must be great as well. I, I don't, you know, people tend to rave about Tommy Hoban. I think he's a, a good SPFL level defender. Again, I see people use the phrase far too good for us. I think he was only far too good for us in the sense that back when he was breaking through at Watford when he was 20 or whatever, he had the potential to go on and do great things. I don't think at his level he is now that he is far too good for us, but I do think he's a solid SPFL level defender. So he's definitely somebody we'd want to do business with. Conor McLennan, I, I, I would be surprised if there was not an offer made to him. Scott Wright is the one that stands out and the one that is perhaps a little bit worrying. Again, you've got that injury factor and again, not just the, the injury this year that's curtailed his involvement in the last couple of months, but the fact that in the last couple of years he's missed a lot of football from being injured. It would be an odd time to finally cut Scott right loose when he's finally shown some consistency and some directness and some involvement uh, and some game-changing involvement in Aberdeen games. So I would hope that there's a deal to be done there and there's... Uh, an acknowledgement from Scott that um, you know the club have been patient with him, the club have provided a good platform for him, and that it's time to repay that if a deal is on the table and, and to sign on again. And the final one, and I think this might be, this will no doubt be controversial, but I think Ash Taylor has done more than enough this season to deserve another deal. What do we think to, to Ash Taylor? Uh, Simon, I'm going to let you take that one first I don't think that's controversial at all I, I, I remember a couple of years ago Getting a hard time for being positive about Ash Taylor The, the thing is, Taylor is um, 
limited as a player. So in certain games, he will stand out well. If, if we have got a barrage of high balls coming our way, then he will win them. And so when we were down at Kilmarnock, up against the big, strong striker that they have uh, there, uh, Taylor won absolutely everything. I think when there's been these sort of physical battles, he's done exceptionally well. So I think the problem with, that you get with Taylor is that you, you move up significant uh, levels when you start playing against uh, in the games against Celtic and Rangers or in European games and then he does get potentially found out in those games but they, they account for a small fraction of the games that we, we play in a season so I mean on, on current form I'd be amazed if they weren't looking at giving Taylor a, another contract because if you recall when we did give him the contract Derek was talking about a list of centre-halves of, you know, I think he had ten centre-halves he talked about. Shaughnessy was clearly one of them, and I think we tried to sign him, and he, he turned it down, and then he went somewhere else. So, you know, the, the kind of market that we are in, at, at that kind of level, if we don't re-sign Taylor and we're forced to go out and get a centre-half, I mean, you mentioned Gallagher there, and... You know that, that you know he potentially would be an upgrade, but he'll be thinking that this is a final cash out opportunity for him, yeah. and he'll be wanting to get the biggest contract he can he can get. Uh, so you know that would be a, a different kind of signing altogether. But unless we're going to splash out and try and get a guy like that, then then I would think it's certain that we'll get Taylor. But no, absolutely. But Taylor and Gallagher do do very different things, and both do them pretty well. I think Gallagher is an excellent man marker, as we've seen for Scotland. Whereas Ash Taylor absolutely dominant in the air, just. Generally speaking, we'll do what he has to do, but there have been games where the likes of Tony Watt and Motherwell and things have thrown him off, Averly. And Tony Watt should never be putting Ash Taylor off his game in the air, and that shouldn't be happening. Uh, so, no one is suggesting that he, he is the, the finished defensive specimen, absolutely not. But I do think that he's done enough, proved enough, particularly this season, to, to at least get another year but that said I think there's, there will be some bargains in the summer market We've actually praised uh, Ash a few, a few times over the past few games as well because he has he has done well um, the phrase that always comes to mind for me when watching Ash Taylor is just keep it simple stupid and I think that's the thing if, if, he, if he doesn't try to do anything flashy then he, he, he excels doesn't he? Yeah I mean there's no doubt he's uh, put a decent run of uh, games together his form's been decent um, I do think that he benefits when he plays alongside um, well has the opportunity to play alongside someone like Tommy Hoban um, who has been so reliable and dependable um, and I wouldn't be adverse to offering him a contract extension but I would like to see us bring in another central defender um, just obviously with the uncertainty, uncertainty around uh, Hoban's future at the club um, and obviously his previous injuries um for Taylor to have somebody to play besides, uh, as we've discussed, he has his um, attributes, uh, positive attributes, but I do not think that he would be dependable as a sort of as the main centre back um, in the in that three that we've shifted to this season. Um, so I'd agree that he's well worthy of a, a contract extension. However, I would still like to see us sort of bolster that position. Um, with either a pre-contract in the in January or bring somebody else in in the summer. So well, hopefully we will see we will see some movement. Um, it'll, I'm sure it'll be a very exciting time as as January always is for us in the transfer window. Sadly, it was announced on Boxing Day uh, that uh, former Aberdeen defender Chick McClellan had passed away at age 67. Uh, Richard Chick obviously was part of the, part played a lot of games, played over two hundred games for Aberdeen over I think it was about nine seasons. Most well known to some of some of the younger younger listeners and the rest of us um, for his work at the youth development team um, alongside Drew Jarvey. Um, a real sad loss uh, to the Aberdeen community that one. Uh, yeah, before my time as a player, but obviously um, aware of his uh, work as a youth coach. And it's really, you read the tributes to him that come out this week, uh, and it's, uh, the hard work and the hours and the, 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 the work he did with, with very limited funding back then, I think, was, um, what stood out in some of the tributes. Neil Simpson's one in particular, I think. Uh, as a player, pretty consistent selection at left back from about 1974 to even deep into Ferguson's first season. 
Uh, I think the the real shame for him as, as a player was, despite being first choice left back at the time, he he missed the 1976 League Cup final to injury. Uh, so uh, so that's obviously a, a shame. On I'm sure he would have um, looked back in his career and just wished that that injury had occurred at some other point. I know that um, it had been made public that he was suffering from dementia towards the end of his uh, end of his life. A horrible, horrible disease and one that many families up and down the country will have experience of uh, dealing with. I don't want to speculate whether it was because of his football career that that was uh, that he either contracted that or accelerated that. But it's certainly something that um, we're only really beginning to uncover now: the link between that disease and and uh, the perils of. Um, the head knocks that you get playing football, it, it, it can suck the life out of a person long before the, their actual light is extinguished. And um, it, it, it can just be a, a, make for a very, very difficult last couple of years. And uh, certainly, again, reading some of the uh, people who had spoken to Chick in the last couple of years, it, it sounded like a, a great shame that um, he wasn't perhaps functioning as he should be as a relatively young man. So it, it, it's a really tragic end to to a life well lived. I saw on um, the the Red TV coverage, Derek, as it Derek Young, I think spoke really warmly of him as well. Um, so he's, he's definitely left a, a, an impact on um, some of the younger lads that came through the club at the time that he was there as well. So yeah, it's, um, it is uh, desperately sad news. We also want to touch as well as, um, despite this being an Aberdeen podcast, it would be remiss of us not to talk about this. Um, obviously, the sad passing of Jim McLean, legendary Dundee United manager uh, as well. For those of us that saw some of that Aberdeen team in the 80s, hugely, hugely strong competition we had with Jim McLean's Dundee United team as well. Jim obviously passed away um, just a few days ago, aged 83 as well. Another one suffering with dementia. The Dundee United team there, I think, you know, to, to, when you discuss how great that you know, how great that Aberdeen team of the 80s was as well, I think there's an argument to be made that, you know, that Dundee United team held their own against us as well um, and really Perhaps, though, know, without that strong Dundee United team, we would have certainly struggled to rack up as many trophies as we did. Well, absolutely. I mean, for a start, they won the league when we were absolutely at our peak. Uh, and, you know, one of the things that people look for, I think, which supporters really look for from their, their manager is a guy who absolutely puts the club first and does whatever it takes to, to put the club first at all times. And, you know... It, it, McLean and his and his contracts and his um, his methods, which would be regarded as totally unacceptable nowadays, but you know they're almost a bit of a sort of joke nowadays. But but it worked in the sense that he was able to retain players at the club uh, long past the point where they would ordinarily have gone and joined teams in in England or or or, or Rangers or Celtic or whatever. And, and you know players could have earned an awful lot more money. And you know I am. Um, Somebody posted on Twitter the the highlights of the the Man United. You know, Dundee United played Man United in the UEFA mm-hmm. Cup, and the the game down in in Manchester. And you know, absolutely fantastic. They went they went toe to toe with with Man United, a team full of big stars. And you know, Dundee United's team is full of big stars as well. It's just that McLean uh, had managed to uh, stick them all on these these enormous uh, contract ball, enormous in length, uh, pretty small in terms of what they were actually getting paid. And you know, if you're looking for a guy who does the absolute best for your club, then then that's him. And the other the other thing I you know I, I started watching Aberdeen in the late seventies, and obviously McLean was the manager of United all through that time. And and people think about McLean as being an old school ranter of a manager, and I suppose to an extent he was. But I remember he used to do weird things with the the numbering of the lineup, which sounds ridiculous nowadays that people have any number any shirt number on. But McLean would have you know. Um, Billy Kirk would be wearing number nine, but he'd play it right back, and then the team would line up in a weird formation. He'd have the the, the numbering all over the place. Davy Dodge was the centre forward, with number eleven. So uh, numbers like two and nine, and and so on. Number five as well. Number five was was um, Hegarty, but if he wasn't available, then sometimes Stuart Beattie would be in the number five shirt. You think, well, where's where's he going to play? He's either right wing or centre midfield. So you know he would he would be constantly trying to find ways of um, confusing the the opposition and. My, my recollection of that period with Dundee United was we either gave them a cuffing with a couple of big sort of five-one wins over them, or they came up here and won. So you know we were pretty much over that that period. We we're pretty much even in terms of head-to-head um, at Pitodry. They 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 gave as good as they got. I mean, from my point of view, and I'm sure Simon's much the same. That there is a tendency to look back on those years because those were the formative football years for us. 
and look back at them with that kind of Miss Dewey-eyed sentimentality. But truly, what an exceptional period for Scottish football that was. And we are rightly proud of our record in that decade. And we amassed a, a number of trophy wins. And really, it was that ability just to get over the line in finals, which I think uh, separated our trophy hall eventually to Dundee United. Europe, obviously, two European trophies for Aberdeen. Incredible, incredible. But the depth and longevity of Dundee United's performances in Europe is... It's stunning, actually, if you look back at the results. I mean, 79, they put out Anderlecht. 1981, Monaco. They went 5-2 in Monaco. They then beat Borussia Mönchengladbach 5-0 at Tannadice. The following season, they put out PSV Eindhoven and Werder Bremen before going out at the quarterfinals of the UEFA Cup on the same night that we beat Bayern Munich. The following season, obviously, they get to the semi-final of the European Cup. In 86, 87, they go all the way to the final and just and just can't quite get over the finishing line. I, I was trying to find the actual quote from Ferguson and I can't remember where it is, but, but as you said at the outset, Martin, I think Alex Ferguson would acknowledge that the path to Aberdeen's success was made easier by the fact that you had somebody else up there chipping away, and people will see the old firm, it wasn't, it was Celtic. You had somebody else up there chipping away at Celtic and taking points off Celtic. And we spoke earlier about those couple of seasons where Aberdeen under Derek McInnes were in contention. That's really what we were missing then. It was another team to, to take points off of Celtic that season. You look back to season 2015-16, I think it was, where we split the points with Celtic. We, we won two, they won two. Celtic lost three games that season, so they lost one league game that wasn't to us all season. They drew a lot of games, they threw away some points, they certainly weren't as impressive as they were, for example, under Brendan Rodgers, but you know, had there been another team of sufficient quality to beat them a few times, then who knows? Who knows what might have happened that season? We might have been really in there and, and really challenging, closer than the eventual sort of challenge that fizzled out with about six games to go. So yeah, what, a, what an icon of a, an absolutely legendary period in Scottish football. But um, rest assured that uh, we'll be back to usual hating Dundee United and everything associated with them ways before the 2nd of January. But uh, I, I can't... You know, we obviously have had... We've lost players associated with the Dons. We've lost Neil Cooper. I can't even begin to imagine the outpouring of emotion that will happen um, around Aberdeen, around the club, around the city, when somebody like an Alex Ferguson does eventually pass away. Uh, and that's obviously the enormity of what Dun United fans are feeling right now. Yeah, I was, I was, I was just going to wrap up by saying that, Richard, that yeah, um, we will be, we will be back in, in a few days with the with our debrief just after Aberdeen versus Dundee United and rest assured um, there will be no praise of Dundee United going on that day, we can assure you. But that brings our podcast to a close for this week. It's been it's been great. Um, I want to thank a guest, Simon. Thank you very much for coming back on. Not so. It's a pleasure. Thanks very much. Ryan, I want to thank you for coming back on as well. Just remind us where we can find uh, Red Point of View online. Sure. Uh, thanks for the, uh, the invite back on. Uh, you can get me at... at at RedPov on Twitter uh, and then just a red point of view uh, is the website. Excellent. Once again, thank you very much for coming on. So yeah, that's a podcast for this this week. We'll be back um, well, hopefully when there's there'll be a, there'll be a match on on Saturday the 2nd of January uh, 2021 um, and we'll have a debrief featuring Aberdeen versus Dundee United. But until then, Happy New Year uh, and come on you Reds.